Back to 1 Corinthians 13, page 959 in your pew Bibles, if that uh, helps you. Looking back over the past several weeks, we've learned many things about love. First, we learned that uh, without love, we are nothing. We can have all the eloquence of speech of heaven and earth. We can have great spiritual insights. We can have all sorts of knowledge. We can have faith, amazing faith, religious fervor. Up to here, we can, we can uh, give to charity. We can even give ourselves to death itself, to martyrdom. But without love, it's nothing. Less than nothing. So what is love, we've been asking? What's this thing of which we stand so terribly in need? This is the question that we've been considering answering these four weeks, five including today. And so far, we have learned that love acts. Love is uh, not feelings so much. It's not feelings we're talking about here, but action. In fact, love often has to override our feelings. Love often acts in opposition to our feelings. Acts despite our feelings. Love exercises patience and kindness toward others. Two sides of the same coin we we saw. Then we learn that love does not envy, desiring what others have and hating them for having it. And then we also learned about the humility of love, that it does not boast. It is not arrogant, but it measures itself. We measure ourselves aright in love. Last time we learned that love does not burp and slurp. Uh, love is not rude. It uh, rather expresses itself in decorum and good manners toward and consider in consideration of others. Our actions and our behavior affects them if we love them. Love in practical, everyday conversation and behavior and words and deeds. But today I think we come to the very core of the matter. I really do. I think we come to the center, the, the essence of love itself. And it may be, I don't know this, but it may be a very little con, uh, coincidence that it appears right about in the center of Paul's list of what, what, uh, what love is. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask for your help and blessing. We need your spirit to open our hearts to receive your word. And we need your spirit to mold and shape and form us according to your word, that we may be root and branch from the inside out. What Christ has paid the ultimate price to purchase us should, uh, should accomplish what we want to be in response to such love as has been lavished on us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Ends, rather. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three but the greatest of these is love. Love does not insist on its own way. Those seven words translate three in the Greek, which are variously rendered in different Bibles and by different scholars in many ways. Here are just a few. Love is not selfish. Love does not claim its rights. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not seek its own things. Love never seeks its own advantage. My, how much is Christ a true lover then, isn't he? According to this definition of love. And my, how far we Christ disciples have to travel from our natural fallen state even to approach this kind of love. For this is love in its simplest, purest, most potent, elemental, boiled down expression. Utter selflessness. Utter selflessness. We are by nature, by our fallen nature, selfish people claiming our rights, seeking our own things, seeking ourselves, seeking our own advantages, insisting on our own way. Christ, our Savior, is just the opposite, isn't he? It's, is it not just a little bit ironic that they, as they were approaching Jerusalem, as they were approaching Jerusalem where Jesus would die, in fact, Jesus had just told them in his many words that he would be delivered up to the chief priests and the teachers of the law who would condemn him to death, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles who would mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. When James and John stroll up to him alone with this very simple and straightforward request. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> well, at least they were honest. 
I guess you have to give him credit for that much. He was going to the cross for them, and they were treating him like like some genie they had conjured from a lamp uh, for granting their wishes. Maybe a little more, just a tiny bit more respectful than that, but you get the idea. What do you want me to do for you? That's how Jesus responds. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) What do you want me to do for you? Let one of us sit at your right and and the other at your left in glory. More candor. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, "Can can you drink the cup? That, that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answer. Jesus says to them, you will. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Naturally, the other ten are pretty ticked off when uh, they get wind of these sons of Zebedee's request. So Jesus grabs this teachable moment, collects them all uh, together, and says this. You know, Jesus says to the twelve, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be Uh, your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the word love doesn't appear anywhere in that little piece of history, but that's exactly what this is all about. James and John did not make their wish out of love. This was utter, unvarnished selfishness that was given voice that day. That day of all days. And that place of all places. They were seeking self. They were seeking the advantages, the things, perhaps even the rights, as James and John may have perceived them, of self. All the polar opposites of love. I say right because I shouldn't wonder that James and John, sons of a successful fisherman, may have been quite accustomed to having servants do, you know, whatever they ask and to receiving whatever they desired whenever they desired it. They may have thought these few years of living meagerly with Jesus under the stars, a sort of brief prelude to glory. In fact, not surprising at all would it be from their request. And judging from that question, it may not be very far from reality. The cup and baptism, well, in their minds may have been the cup of the feast and the bath before the banquet. Of course, they would drink the cup, wouldn't they? And they would undergo the baptism. Eventually, James would lose his head. And John in exile, in lonely exile. Jesus, in contrast to those two that day, was loving them and loving us. They came to Jesus to be served. He came not 
to be served, but to serve. They were thinking of themselves, not of him. He was thinking of them and not at all of himself. They were pursuing their own things, honor, power, comfort, glory. He was pursuing them, their salvation through servanthood and suffering, even to the point of death. Remember not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for them, for many, for us. Dear flock, that is love. That is love. The opposite of seeking our own way, our own rights, our own things, our own advantage, is self-denial that seeks others' advantages, others' rights, the things, the, the salvation of others. That is love. Isn't that exactly why uh, what Jesus has done and does for us? That's why we read together this morning Philippians chapter 2 again today. I know that we've read it together recently. It's not been long since we read the passage, and appropriately so, during Advent. But it's worth reading again and again and again. I hope that maybe you'll take it home and put it up on your refrigerators this week and and by the sink and at your desk and read it again. This and 1 Corinthians 13 are worth repeating to ourselves over and over. First, to be reminded of the love of Jesus for us, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, or as another version has it, something to be used to his own advantage. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is love. That is love. But also because Paul wrote those words with a specific purpose in mind that we should have this mind among ourselves too. This mind which is ours, he says, in Christ Jesus, that each of us look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That we do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. That is love. Love seeks not itself. It does not insist on its own way. You recognize, don't you, that love, true love, is not uh, not an easy thing, is it? You're being called to something here that is that is often painful, and the very opposite of what every sinew of your being wants to do. He came to that for Jesus, didn't it? Remember that. Remember on the night before his death in the garden, the prospect of death the next day dropped Jesus to his knees. Great drops of blood were pressed from his brow as from his wrenched bowels from the innermost depths of his heart. He cried out to God, remove this cup from me. Take it away. He knew what horrors that dark and bitter goblet held in store, and every 
being, every fiber of his being revolted against it. But love does not insist on its own way. For Jesus' love meant the cross. It meant death. It meant the total surrender of himself to the wrath of God in the interest of others, in your interest, in mine. And now for you and me, it means the same thing. For you, it means the cross. It means death. It means surrendering yourself utterly and completely in the interest of others. We sang over the Christmas season last month, Nails, spears shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. But now our theme must be the cross be born by me, by you. Jesus, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, bids us come and die. That is love. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Happily, James and John would not always miss the point so terribly like they did that day en route to Jerusalem when they sought their own things, seats of honor for themselves. This same disciple turned apostle John later wrote in his first letter this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you understand what John is teaching us here? He's saying that love is essentially not self-seeking, but continuously self-giving. That's the nature, that's the essence of love. Do you want to know if you love? Ask yourself a simple question. Am I giving myself? If you are, then you're loving. It's giving the precious, most precious thing we have, our lives, of course, if it comes to us, as Jesus did for us. But in the meantime, it also means everyday things, things as simple, John points out, as giving food or, or clothing or money or encouragement or maybe things even more valuable, our time, our energies to our brother in need. It means keeping a heart wide open to others, to all others brothers and others, even our enemies. And not just things, dear flock, but ourselves. It's one thing to give your things. It's another thing to give yourself, which is, of course, exactly what Jesus does. He, he, he gave not just things, though. He certainly gives us things. He has not withheld from us even himself. 
And the, dy- the dynamic in work at work in us, John says, is that God has not only exhibited his love for us on the cross, but he's caused his love to dwell in us, to abide in us. He's revealed his love to you, Christian. He has shown you his love, of course, but he has also placed that love in you. That love dwells in you. It it abides in you, which means we have Think about this. We have a double incentive, don't we? An inescapable double incentive to give ourselves in love for others. God has shown us his love and he has given us that love and it dwells in us. Now, so far I've spoken to you only in general terms, but now before we leave off this morning, let's consider some practical real life scenarios of love. Think of the places where you spend your life. Where do you spend your life? Basically in three places. In your home, in church, and in the world. Right? At home, in the church, in church, and in the world. So let's ask first, what does love, self-sacrificial love, love that seeks not its own but the interests of others, look like in your home? Well, They say that when both a husband and wife are seeking self, they do not have a marriage. Of course, they are wrong. Uh, Where you have a husband and wife, you have a marriage. Where you have a marriage, you have a husband and wife. The question is not whether there is a marriage, but what kind of marriage there is. Where each is seeking self. You have a very unhappy marriage, a tenuous and difficult Marriage, a marriage that is not at all like the one between Christ and his bride, the church. Where you have two selfless people, a husband and wife, seeking the other's good, looking after the other's welfare, seeking the other's pleasure, There you have a happy marriage, a whole and God-glorifying marriage, a marriage that reflects the image of Christ and his bride, the church. Selflessly, he gave and gives himself for his bride, a bride who selflessly yields herself to her husband. A marriage when where each desires deeply to share with each other, to understand each other, to be attentive to the other's needs, even to apply manners toward one another, as we heard about last week. Husbands, wives, let me ask you, are you loving each other that way? How much more stable and more satisfying would our homes, our marriages be if they are marked by the cross? Children and parents going the way of the cross know how to love each other. Parents who sacrifice to raise their children in the faith, they die to themselves. In many ways, they die perhaps to promotions at the office uh, regarding time with their family as, as too important. They sacrifice leisure time, men, when providing for your family means that you work two jobs if necessary to provide for your family. 
It is the sacrifice, dying to ourselves is the sacrifice of personal possessions and pleasures. That raising covenant children in the Lord simply cannot afford. Parents even go the way of the cross when applying the tough love to their children that allows their children to suffer as much as is needed in order to help them to learn the go, to go the way of the cross, resisting the temptation always to surround and our children cushioning them in comfort from every blow, spiritual and physical. Children, children, you go the way of the cross in your homes when you die to yourselves by obeying your parents and honoring them in everything and always. Children, how far did Jesus go to obey his father? How far did Jesus go to obey his father? He went all the way to the cross. This battle of the wills between you and your parents, it ends where the cross begins. For you remember what Jesus said to his father, not my will, but thine be done. Children, you say that to your parents, and you live that way, and you are living the way of the cross. Not my will, but yours, father, yours, mother, yours will be done. I will clean up my room, and I will clean it now. I will do this task you have told me to do. I will avoid those people and stay with these people that you tell me because I am going the way of the cross. I am obeying. I'll turn to the church. I want you to know that I preach my sermons first to myself. How well I listen to them is another matter, but today I invite the late John Stott to preach to me in your hearing and to any other pastor who might overhear us. There is a place for authority and discipline in the church, in the community of Jesus, writes Stott to pastors. Nevertheless, Jesus' emphasis was not on these things, but on the new style of leadership which he introduced, distinguished by humility and service. Paul himself felt that tension. As an apostle, he had received from Christ a special degree of authority. He could have come to the recalcitrant Corinthian church with a whip. We read that before, didn't we, in this letter, and was ready to punish every act of disobedience if he had to, but he did not want to be harsh. In the use of his authority, which the Lord Jesus had given to him for building them up, not tearing them down. He would much prefer to come as a father visiting his dear children. It was the tension between the death and resurrection of Jesus, between weakness and power. He could exercise power, of course, since Christ lives by God's power, but since he was crucified in weakness, it is the meekness and gentleness of Christ that Paul wants most to exhibit. If Christian pastors adhered more closely 
to the Christ who is crucified in weakness and we're prepared to accept the humiliations which weakness brings rather than insisting on wielding power, there would be much less discord and more harmony in the church. Well, enough of that. I'd much rather preach to you than to be <laughs> preached to. So to you, dear flock, I say simply this. You know what to do with this. I know you know what to do with this. You know how to live together as a congregation in love, seeking not your own things, but the things of others, looking not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. I know you know this. Because I've seen you living it. I've watched you live this kind of love for each other. And I know that you know where you're not. And I know that you know how to repent where you aren't. And where you must repent. And then the world. Christ suffered to bring the gospel to the world. And in this too, you and I are must go the way of the cross. As we bring light and justice to the world, we must follow the suffering servant for whom bringing these things, light and justice to the world, suffering was a condition of success. Douglas Webster wrote, Mission sooner or later leads to passion. In biblical categories, the servant must suffer. Every form of missions is cruciform. We can understand mission only in terms of the cross. That's certainly true for our missionaries who sacrifice much to serve in other countries and cultures. We could make a long, long list of the ways that they die daily, take up their cross daily and follow Christ. But, but we must die too. We must die to ourselves in many ways if we're going to reach our neighbors, if we're going to reach this culture in which God has placed us, not to mention the, the nations that are now coming to us right here in this city, in our very communities with the gospel. The cross calls us to, dear flock, calls us to a much deeper, much more radical and costly kind of evangelism than, than maybe we've ever even considered as a church, let alone experienced. But if love for the world requires of us what it required of Christ, and it does, then we must suffer and suffer willingly to see that others are brought into this kingdom of God and into these benefits and under the summons also of the cross of Christ. That is love. Love that does not insist on its own way. Amen.